You'll know real when you get it. It will say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things that you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hello, hello, it's Brooke DeVard, and you're listening to the Naked Beauty Podcast. Welcome back for another episode. As promised, this conversation is all about Josephine Baker, who is the ultimate icon, it girl, entertainer, World War II spy, civil rights activist, just beauty entrepreneur. Frankly, we, we get into the products that she endorsed. I have so much respect for this woman who was born 116 years ago. And I always think like if Josephine Baker were around today, like she would have the most popping Instagram account of all time. Like whatever her hive was, I would be in that hive, whatever she called her fans, I would be there. I'd probably have like a dedicated fan page for her. I just, I'm obsessed. I live and she's had such an interesting, complex life. And we all know the banana skirt and we all know the iconic images of Josephine Baker. But I really wanted to have a historian and author, Nichelle Gaynor, who is incredible on to break down and dissect her life. You probably know Nichelle Gaynor's very popular book and blog turned Instagram account, Vintage Black Glamour. She's actually been on the podcast before and we've talked about some incredible Black women throughout history. But I was like, we need for Black History Month, we need our Josephine Baker dedicated episode. It needs to happen. We need to talk about her life from the very beginning to the very end. And I learned a lot in the discussion. And I think you guys will learn a lot too. Whether you're already a Josephine Baker fan and you feel like you know everything, I promise you're going to learn new things from this episode. Or if you're just like, I've heard the name, but I'm not quite sure what she does. I promise you are going to be very inspired by her story. And definitely, if you haven't watched the Josephine Baker story, find it and stream it. Now, I looked everywhere. It's not on HBO. It's not on Amazon. It's not on Netflix. It's on YouTube in full. So that's like a fun Sunday activity just to watch the story of Josephine Baker's life played by Lynn Whitfield. I reached out to Lynn Whitfield's daughter, who's been on the podcast, Grace. And I was like, I think I like need to interview your mom. Just as I'm getting into her performance, she won the Emmy for playing Josephine Baker. And so she was like, yeah, my mom, my mom is going to come and do the podcast. So you guys have that episode to look forward to as well. Another living legend. But this was a great conversation. Other than that, I hope everyone is easing into February. Happy Black History Month to everyone. By the time this comes out, we're already going to be a week into Black History Month, but happy Black History Month nonetheless. I think one of the takeaways from this episode is that Black history is American history. I also, this week, just yesterday, I was on the Today Show. Yes, I gave an interview on the Today Show talking about my good friend Giada and the amazing work she's doing with Ami Kole. They wanted me just to speak as 
a beauty consumer and as a podcaster about what I find to be unique about Ami Kole and the fact that she's centering Black women, not just doing an extended shade range, and how I hope this is a signal to the rest of the industry that women of color appreciate products that are created with them in mind. So that was really cool to see myself on TV, to do an interview for TV. I got great feedback from the Today Show producers. They were like, you were great. You were so quick. You spoke so succinctly. And I'm like, okay, five years of podcasting is paying off. But it was my first time, I think, not my first time on television, but I think it was my first TV interview, like my first time speaking on television, which is pretty cool. So... I posted a clip of my little Today Show segment on at Naked Beauty Planet or at Brooke DeVard, my personal Instagram account. You can follow me on either or both. Thank you all for all of the love and support for this show. Please take the time to rate and review if you're finding the episodes and the content that I'm putting out week after week helpful if it's adding value to your life. I always love to hear the feedback. And as you're listening to this episode about Josephine Baker, and if you're learning something interesting and you think it's cool and you want other people to listen to it, please take the time to share it on your Instagram story. Maybe take that extra step and like include a link to listen, but you don't even have to do all of that. If you love the show, I always love to see the support. I love to see how you guys are listening when you're listening. I appreciate it so much. Let's get into my conversation with Michelle Gaynor. You'll know real when you get it. It will say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things that you love are checked by experts, not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I am joined by Nichelle Gaynor, the author of Vintage Black Glamour and recently featured on And Just Like That. Who had Vintage Black Glamour in her apartment? It was Carrie, right? No, no. It was uh, Nicole Ari Parker's character. Oh, um, LTW. What, LTW. LTW. So that was great. A, a beautiful, envy-worthy apartment with beautiful art. To kick off Black History Month, I wanted to do an episode focused on incredible Black women in history who've had a huge impact on culture, on beauty. And I can think of no better person to talk about than Josephine Baker, who, you know, I'm obsessed with. But like, who's not obsessed with Josephine Baker? The more you learn about her, the more there is to love. Don't you agree? Why are you obsessed with her? What, 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 what is the appeal to, uh, to you? I'm curious. <laughs> I feel like Josephine Baker is an it girl before that terminology, it girl existed in that she very carefully curated her image and developed her own brand. It is that kind of classic rags to riches story where you are able to, through sheer talent and will, become one of the most famous people in the world. 
She is an American-born but French entertainer. She was also a French resistance agent. She was a civil rights activist. She was the first Black woman to star in a major motion picture, which is a silent film in, from 1927, Siren of the Tropics. And we're going to get into all of her influence on like the Roaring Twenties and how she really fostered her career in France. But I want to start with her early life. And also, I should say, Michelle, before we get into her early life, you run an Instagram account, Vintage Black Glamour, and you were telling me that Josephine Baker is one of the people that when you post about her, regardless of when you're posting about her, people just go crazy. They love it. Absolutely. She's, I mean, she was born well over 100 years ago, as you know. So most of the time, people who were super famous 50 years ago, 20 years ago, already forgotten. And she's not forgotten. There are people from all walks of life, even if they're just discovering her, even if they just know the, her most famous outfit, the banana skirt, they are just enamored by her. And if they are influenced by other artists, which they are, they're influenced by her, whether they realize it or not. If they're a Madonna fan or, you know, they're influenced by Josephine Baker. So Frida Josephine McDonald. That's the name she was born with. I always you... forget the McDonald. That's so true. <laughs> I know. Born June 3rd, 1906 in St. Louis, Missouri. Now, I read that her parents were just set, like former slaves. Have you seen this? I've seen various. I've, some things are not always definitive. And also, they're dependent, especially in early days of the press, depending on different stories told by them, uh, you know, by either Josephine Baker herself or other biographers. So I don't know that they were slaves, but it's not unheard of. I mean, think about it. Born in 19, slavery technically ended in, in what, 1865 or whatever. So you can be 30, 40 years old ha having kids. It happened all the time. Certainly someone of her generation had parents or grandparents who were indeed formerly enslaved. So if her parents were not enslaved, somebody in her family was, because that's just how it was, especially, you know, <laughs> where, where she was born and the lot in life that, that she grew, grew up in. She always had seeds of St. Louis throughout her life. I mean, when she in, ended up going to France later in life, she brought her mother over. I have this great picture of her that I've posted. And when I move, I'm going to get a big blow up of it and, and post it in my house. It's a picture of her watering with what looks like collard greens in her garden in Paris, in, in, in France. So, oh, wow. So she, there's always, I mean, her and her mother lived with her there. So there was always some part of home with her throughout her career. She just not, she didn't just leave home and, and forget about it, you know. Yes, but their family did have to struggle economically to make ends meet. She started working very young, eight years old, um, working as a live-in domestic for families, washing clothes. Now, I'm curious, at that time, early 1900s in America, a young Black girl, are you in school as well or are you working full-time already? It, it really depends. It depends on your family. Maybe you were in school, but it depends on, um, and and I, they would get some sort of education, because especially by that time, they felt, if, if nothing else, it was important that you could read the Bible and stuff like that. And they went to school and they had, you know, they knew enough, but it just was not a, working was more important. It was understood that you needed to work. And especially that type of work that Black women did in those days, being a washerwoman and doing that hard, you know, with the large soap and the wash bins and the, uh, whatever you, oh gosh, I forget, you know, what the thing that they would manually wash the clothes with, that really hard labor. And she experienced some abuse in that role. Apparently she put too much soap in the laundry load at one point and one of the women she was working for burned her hands, which is horrific. And she was exposed to racial violence. Like I think when she was 11, she saw some racial violence happening 
in St. Louis, and she recalled it in a speech. I have a quote from the speech here. So she says, I can still see myself standing on the West Bank of the Mississippi, looking over into East St. Louis and watching the glow of the burning of Negro homes lighting the sky. We children stood huddled together in bewilderment, frightened to death with the screams of the Negro families running across this bridge with nothing but what they had on their backs as their worldly belongings. So with this vision, I ran and ran and ran. So at 11 years old, you're seeing horrible racial violence, which has to, you know, shape your sense of the country you're living in. Well, not only that, but you saw it, your parents saw it, because by that time in history, there was like a reign of terror against Black people uh, during this time. There were, you know, entire towns being um, burned down in, in, in Delaware, and everyone knows about Tulsa. She saw a lot. Um, twelve By age 12, she drops out of school. By 13, she's a waitress at the Old Chauffeur's Club. Um, now, I've also read that she became like a street performer or like she was basically living on the street, sleeping on cardboard boxes, scavenging for food. I don't know if I'm remembering correctly, and I could be wrong because I didn't refresh my memory on the early part of her life. But I think during that point, she was not living all, I mean, maybe if she ran away, because remember, she got married early, like 14 yes. or 15 to get away. I think she would just kind of slip away like a lot of early performers did. Ethel Waters did. They would slip away and they knew they could go to the town square and make a, make some change, you know, performing for people in the, in the town square. That's, she did that type of thing. So at 13, she gets a job as a waitress at the Old Chauffeur's Club. She later marries Willie Wells, who she meets at the um, Old Chauffeur's Club at 13 years old, as you said, to kind of get out of the house. But after her divorce from Wells at the age of 14 years old, she found work with a street performance group called the Jones Family Band. So I guess this is when she starts to decide, okay, I'm going to become a performer and I'm going to start using entertainment as my way to make some money for myself. Yeah, I think she saw that she was not only good at it and enjoyed it, but she, you know, she she could see that audience. There's many performers talk about that spark they see in other people and it kind of hits them like, oh, I think I can do this. I, I mean, I enjoy it, but other people seem to enjoy it too. I think this is something I can actually do. And, you know, she was kind of bitten with the, the bug, as they say, but I think that she also could see, I, she, I feel like she knew she could go places. Yes. So she was recruited in St. Louis. Then as a teenager, she finds herself in New York City. It's the Harlem Renaissance at this time, 1920s. Almost the Harlem Renaissance. but Almost the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah. Okay. The Harlem Renaissance is brewing. A very exciting time for lots of Black people. They called it the Great Migration, leaving the South, coming to the Eastern cities. And she performed at the Plantation Club the name of that is a not great name for a plantation club. Why? Was but it's that? like the Cotton Club. A lot of those clubs had those names in those days in Chicago and New York, whatever. They had all those rent. Like today, you would be like, whoa. But unfortunately, that was not unusual. It's <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so she secures a role in the chorus line of Shuffle Along, which is a big deal, right? In 1921. Yeah, Shuffle Along was a big deal because it was the first Black show to hit Broadway, proper Broadway, the Great White Way, as they called it. And Florence Mills thing was the, um, the star of the, of the show at that time. And to be in the chorus, to be anywhere near Shuffle Along was a big deal as a Black performer because everybody, Black, White, whomever, the world wanted to see that show was standing room only. Langston Hughes talks about slipping in, you know, to go and see that show. Everyone tried to go and it was the place to be. It was the hottest ticket in town. And this is before 
before anyone knew her. Remember, she was just a chorus girl. She stood out. People remembered her. But And I have a quote here about how she kind of made herself stand out. So she, apparently she was positioned at the end of the chorus line and she was fearful that she'd maybe be outshadowed by the other dancers. So she used her position to introduce comedy into her routine. So making more facial expressions, kind of being a little bit bigger with the movement. So she would stand out from the other dancers. So I like that even at a young age, she had the foresight to be like, okay, I have a small role, but I'm going to put some jelly on it so that people recognize me apart from the crowd. And she knew no one was going to put her out front. She, you know, she was not going to be, they, no, no one was checking for her as, as, as they, as the kids say, you know, so she wanted to make sure she got out there. Absolutely. So. Yes. So she gets to Paris in 1925. And what I've read is that she sails to Paris. Did, would you take a ship to Paris in those times? Oh, yeah. Very common. Um, because it, And it was probably cheaper, too. And that's, I mean, the, I, planes were still a little, you know, people were taking planes, but the ships were certainly far more common. And I would say more economically um, feasible for most people. Like, let me read a lot of... Um, Langston Hughes's um, autobiographies. He's on. He used to work on ships. I mean, half the time he would get a job on a ship that would pay his fare to get over to Europe and wherever he wanted to go. So, so they just let her do it. But she knew she had to break out, and when the opportunity presented itself, she was you know, Europe. She knew Europe would be it. You know, so that was a, a wise move. It was a very wise move for her. You know, we always hear about the Harlem Renaissance and Harlem as this hub for Black creative excellence. And we know that there were lots of writers there and dancers and, you know, musicians and visual artists. So it makes sense. Harlem makes a lot of sense. What was Paris like in 1925 for her to say, this is a place where I can have a career? Like, What do you think influenced that decision for her to think, I think she was 19 at the time when she got to Paris. Yeah, the the difference was the, the difference in opportunity for her and also being a Black American. And I stress being a Black American, that's where the difference comes in because if she were coming from Nigeria or some other country, you know, Algeria, she would have probably a different um, treatment. But being a Black American, she's getting treated better over there. She's, she can sit down at a cafe. The segregation is not what it is in in the United States, anywhere, where, where even even in so-called liberal places like New York and California at that time, the, things were still segregated. So the opportunity was um, un- undeniable. And Europe in general, and I would say for Black Americans, because we were seen as exotic and different, the minute we open our mouths, that accent. And so, and of course, Josephine being the, the light, you know, this, you know, this star shine on her, there was, you know, it was just undeniable. And so she drew people in in that way. And the opportunities presented to her were different. And I would say that she was, you know, even with the banana skirt, with her willing to work nude in, in a lot of ways, not that there wasn't um, some nude shows or whatever in New York, but, you know, America is still like this. It's still more buttoned up and puritanical. more conservative, puritanical kind of vibes. And she can be more free there. And I think some of the work and she was willing to do that. I think that some other even some other black performances, maybe someone who was maybe more steeped in the church, say, or had more of a buttoned up personality, even if they had the same opportunities that she had, it wouldn't have come out the same. It, it had to be her. It was meant for her. Yes. I have a quote here about her early days. Um, she did a, a 1974 interview and, and reflecting back on those times, she said, I was only in the chorus and shuffle along in chocolate dandies. I became famous 
first in France in the 1920s. I couldn't stand America, and I was one of the first colored Americans to move to Paris. Oh, yes, Bricktop was there as well. Me and her were the only two, and we had a marvelous time. Of course, everyone who was anyone knew Bricky, and they got to know Miss Baker as well. So who is Bricktop? I was going to say, do you know who Bricktop was? Yeah. Fascinating lady. She was a, a performer as well. She owned a little club, like a cafe in Paris. She was American. She was from, as what she called, by West by God, Virginia. She was from West Virginia. <laughs> and she had one of the clubs that when Black Americans came over to Paris, she was one of the first stops because she knew everybody. And being a stranger in town, and you, you want someone who speaks English and someone Black who understands Paris. So she would kind of show people the way Langston Hughes went to her. Like he was one, everybody, everybody black that went to Paris at some point went to, went to Bricktop's club to kind of get acclimated, to get a meal, you know, to get, to get something to drink, to kind of, she would tell them where to stay, where not to stay, who was who, that kind of thing, even if they knew. So she was a, um, talk about, I mean, I mean, there are so many TV shows and limited series that can be, you know, people. Oh my God, exactly. I mean, and, and, and how incredible to be that connective tissue for, you know, Black Americans. She was the plug. She was the plug. The plug, yes, she was, she was the, the plug. plug. Absolutely. So in Paris, she becomes a huge success. Um, she appears, as you mentioned, practically nude on stage. Some of her dancing is like more on the erotic side, but I, I hesitate to say things like erotic dancing, because I feel like it in today's context of like 2022, we think of like a stripper performance, but it was more just that she wore very little clothes and was dancing like seductively. Erotic in their sensibility in that 1920s, it was kind of erotic. I mean, they called the Don Savage, you know, the kind of play on the savage. I mean, she knew what she was doing. She, but she had she control of it. Yeah. Yes. It's, yes. It, 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 there was erotic and, and it was erotic and she didn't have a problem with it. She was in control of it. It wasn't a, you know, she wasn't ashamed of it. It was nothing to be, you know, ashamed of or shy about. So there, and, and it was interesting. That's why people enjoyed it. That's why a hundred years later, people are so fascinated with her because she wasn't ashamed of it. And she was just so free and into it. And it wasn't fake and it wasn't forced. And it wasn't like, oh my God, I better do this. She was having a time of her life and it showed. Yes. And Dance Sauvage, which was, you know, that, that was like her big break. Art Deco is becoming very popular in France at this time. And that's this like revival around non-Western art. So African art starts becoming very popular in like French cultural circles. And here you have this Black American woman who's in, in dance. So, I mean, that technically translates to what, like the savage dance. So she yeah, kind like of, the savage, she's, the sa yeah. mm -hmm. she's playing into the stereotype a little bit, but again, as you said, making it her own. And she wears this iconic banana skirt, which I feel like, Josephine Baker and the banana skirt is probably one of the most reproduced images. I think it's the first thing people think of when they think of Josephine Baker. If you dress up as Josephine Baker, you're going to put on a ton of pearls. You're going to maybe do, um, what is that hairstyle called? Finger waves. Finger waves, yeah. You're going to do finger waves. If in you do hair. a costume and you want people to know you're Josephine Baker, you're in the banana skirt because the that's the first skirt. thing people think of. If you're in the, she also did the tuxedo, um, but most people think of Marlene Dietrich with it. They all, I mean, even look, Marlene Dietrich, yes, indeed, but there's also Gladys Bentley, who was one of the um, um, iconic uh, gay uh, performers um, also around that time, around the 1920s, a black gay performer who was in that tuxedo around the same time. I mean, I know Dietrich gets credit first because she was a huge white star at, at this time, but it's a, uh, 
Yeah, I think Gladys may have had it first. But yeah, good. But Josephine was also in the top hat and tuxedo. And she she tried everything. She did, like I said, she worked with all these big designers and and you know, just she just could, you know, again, from St. She wasn't exposed to this stuff in St. Louis. So it's oh, let me try this. Oh, this fabric is what I mean, she learned French like that. A lot of people go and you know, travel in different countries and they don't always learn the language, even if they're there all the time. She picked it up right away as a matter of interest, I would say, and also as a matter of survival. She was a really special being. There's been other performers over the years who have gone over to Europe and to, to France or whatever, learned the language or not or whatever. The undeniable thing about Josephine Baker is that she just had that light in her that was genuine, I think. I think that after a while, when it's, when it's genuine, when it's real, it lasts. When it's not fake, when it's not forced, it wasn't some manager forcing an image on her. She certainly tried things on a lot of the, you know, the portrayals in the movies that she had, they took from her own life, you know, some of the outfits that she did, some of the things with the managers, some of her lovers, because she had that freedom. And again, like you, like you say, with Art Deco and some of the black art becoming popular during that time, it wasn't like, say, a, a black artist from Kenya or Senegal or whatever, that would be closer to that art saying would have something to say about it. She was, she had kind of a remove, I'd say being an American black person. And also, like I said, in those days, it's also a survival thing. I mean, what's she going to do? Go back to America and try to be in the corners, try to be a made in a Hollywood movie or dealing with that nonsense. And you have this special vibe. I mean, yes, there were other performers who did opera singers or no, well, I shouldn't say notorious, but very famous for that over the years, going over to Europe and have an entire career. My own aunt did it for 50 years. <laughs> so why you're going to have a special time, but when you are a special, when you're a one of a kind, like a Josephine Baker, it's memorable because of the delight that she had in her work. How She wasn't the best singer, but she worked really hard at it in, in her recordings. And just to give context around how successful she was as an American entertainer working in France, Ernest Hemingway said that she was the most sensational woman that anyone ever saw. You know, she spent hours talking to these incredible people in bars like Picasso. Picasso drew paintings of her. She was hanging out with Jean Cocteau, the famous poet and playwright. All of the kind of French intellectuals at the time or American intellectuals that were in Paris were really enamored with Josephine Baker. Have you seen, I know Woody Allen's like very, eh, we don't really love him anymore, <laughs> but have you seen Midnight in Paris? I did not do one with Owen Wilson. Yes. there's. A scene I think it's one of those Josephine on my Baker list and I have not hanging seen out. it. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting, this idea of like what Paris was like in like the late 1920s, when you think about all of these incredible, like Picasso in a bar hanging out, talking to Josephine Baker, it almost feels like very surreal. Another one, and we're jumping ahead a little bit into her later life, but I have read that she had an affair with the artist Frida Kahlo. Have you read that? That's what people assume assume that they say that all the time. I think it's a thousand percent like, and and, and I... (laughs) A, the but Mexican also, painter Frida Kahlo for people that aren't familiar. The iconic Frida Kahlo. There is one picture of them together that I know of, but she was um, very fluid sexually, I say bisexual, whatever, whatever sexuality we call it. I don't, she was not limited. <laughs> she didn't limit herself. And I would say that not just Josephine Baker, but any of these stars, think about it, before social media, before all these, they had affairs with all kinds of people that if we knew the truth, we would be like, what? They were living. So I'm sure she probably had an affair. She's certainly friendly with her, but possibly surely with Frida Kahlo and probably God knows who else that we that we probably love to know. 
You know, talk about like, you know, the vintage teeth, <laughs> you know, when I go into the next realm, that's where I, I just want to go to the realm where I can talk to her. Exactly. Like learning. So who, cause I want to know the tea. Yes. I want to do all the spiritual fabulous stuff, but I also, I also want to know some of the vintage shade, the vintage tea. I would like to know the truth, things that people speculated on over time. So I would say, yeah, I, I feel like everything is a yes because no one actually knows. It's all speculation. <laughs> yes. But it, you know what? It's informed speculation because I could so see that happening. This is not a rumor. This is true. And it's one of my favorite facts about her that she had a pet cheetah named Chiquita who wore a diamond encrusted collar. I mean, that level of fabulousness is just beyond. I have, that, I have great pictures. Well, I've posted them before too. Lovely pictures of her with Chiquita. Uh, it's, uh, I, I would probably hang those two. There's so many great, there's like, I mean, talk about one of the most photographed uh, women in the world. You could, I can, I've done these three books on other black legends, but I can just, obviously I can do five books on her alone with pictures that no one has ever seen before. Cause there's so many, but can you imagine even in that day, I know that there were different regulations, but to have like, yes, I'm going to have a pet cheetah. Like it's just wild. And I've even read that sometimes the cheetah would join her on stage and like jump into the orchestra pit and it would like cause me. And they, and they would have food for, they would have to feed him, you know, so they would have like food, you know, just like later on, just like years, decades later with Billie Holiday and her dogs, how to met the show, they would have like food set aside for her doll steaks and everything. So exactly. It's like, I have my right. Or whatever cheetahs eat. I don't know what cheetahs eat, but yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure Chiquita only ate like the finest filet mignon. Finest. I mean, if you have a diamond encrusted collar, I mean, that, that speaks to everything. And see, stuff like that. I wonder where things like that are now. There are some things of Josephine Baker, like the banana skirt, one of the first ones that she wore, some of her outfits, some of the beauty products that are in that museum in France that has some of these things. But things like the the, the collar that Chiquita wear and all, wore and all the, I just wonder where stuff like that is. People, they just didn't know. Now people know to save every little thing. But back then, people weren't thinking like that to preserve things, you know? Or she had to, sometimes you had to sell things, you hawk and stuff for, you know, to get money. But that's the type of thing I think about. Like, yeah, where is that collar? <laughs> well, you already alluded to it, but I want to get into her work as kind of an influencer. So she endorsed Baker Fix hair gel, but she also endorsed bananas, I've learned, um, shoes, cosmetics, other products. She allowed herself to be like the face of a brand, which is so interesting when you think about influencer marketing today. But she basically realized, I'm very popular. Lots of people want to look like me. I'm going to start endorsing products for profit. And I'm so curious to hear from you. One, was this sort of thing happening very often at that time? Two, was it that French white women wanted to look like her? And so she was selling to them. Like, who was the intended audience? And what would like the revenue split look like for a deal like that? Was she just simply the face of it? Did she get a percent? Like, did she own some of the company? I think in some cases she did, but um, they were both cases. She was, uh, she endorsed, but I think she also had ownership in some, but not, probably not the best deals. I don't know that her manager, I, I don't think, I don't know the exact numbers. I, from my, from my understanding, they weren't the best um, financial uh, deals. You know, advertising and influencer things, that stuff is not new. It's not like, even when Josephine Baker was doing it, there weren't a lot of black stars period. So she was, you know, obviously in Europe, in France, and also known, you know, throughout Europe and all that. So yeah, some of these European women wanted to look like her. And remember, they weren't all white. <laughs> they were, you know, they were uh, whatever. So, and definitely some um, Black women in America wanted to look like her, but she was a a superstar. She was a phenomenon. And she was, uh, 
in my view, you know, Black America, we all have different views of skin tone and whatever. I don't think that Josephine Baker was light-skinned. I'd say she was like a medium light-skinned person. So the way photographs and different things and the way, you know, powder, makeup, whatever worked in those days, people can still kind of project their own fantasy onto her, whatever their skin tone, whether they were a little lighter than her in reality or a little darker than her in reality. They can still see themselves in her, whether they were a blonde in Norway or a, a Black woman in in New York City or something. So yes, it, 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 I think it was both. And I, I don't, I don't, rec- I'm sorry, I don't recall the exact um, detail of the businesses, but I noticed she, I think a lot of it was endorsements and she had offers coming out of her ears. When you were a, a star, you know, at, at any time, there was always someone, you know, coming, you know, they want you to endorse this product. And can you speak about this or whatever? It was not uncommon. So it's advertising and marketing is, is, is as old, is very old. Yes. You also sent me an image of Baker oil, which was like a, a tanning oil, a bronze, an oil that you could put on to bronze in the sun, which I would imagine. Uh, not that crap back then, because they didn't have good stuff back then. I just wondered what that was actually, you know. Yeah. Like if it actually worked. Yeah. Like wh- I wonder what it actually was, like what the actual, because if you're white and you want a little bit of a tan and you, if you're white skinned, I'll say, and you want your, you know, more of a toast color skin, like Josephine Baker. I don't know that that world was actually helping you. Maybe it was, but, um, and even some of it, you know, the same thing with the darn, um, hair products. But again, a lot of that was st- hair products, skin products, everything has improved over the decades, as you know, but I'm just curious, especially like in those early, in the twenties and the thirties, like, I, I just wonder what they, you know, it's probably just petroleum and God knows what else in there. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the Count, um, Count Giuseppe Pepito Abitino. What was their relationship like? That, that was her, her first manager, right? The one in, in France. Yeah. So he was he kind of guided her along the way she had, you know, she, she was romantically uh, with him, too, I, I believe. But he was kind of like a guy from what I understand. And I believe what, you know, and he's certainly been portrayed in, you know, different um, stories uh, about her. I think he was kind of a. You know, a manager, kind of like that, you know, Sven got a little bit of a Svengali in there, I think, not, you know, too much, but she, he definitely had influence on her. I think he guided her in a lot of, he was probably the one in her ear, like it, when she was in circles and, and, and when she was in these rarefied rooms where probably the only black face in the room and, and also with these, you know, with other counts and countesses or royalty or other rich people or whatever, telling her, okay, this is how you do this. That's who this is, whatever, you know, that person in your ear kind of, you know, so, and he kind of guided her, especially, um, I think in that early point, like during the, 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 her peak part, the, the, the early, like 1925-ish through the, right before the depression, basically around that time, you know, yeah. I think she stayed in Europe during the depression because why he come did. back? Yeah, because exactly. <laughs> that's how I, I think of him is just a manager, not just the typical manager and like, okay, this offer came in. I think you should do this or whatever. I think he was also kind of one of the guideposts for her, for Europe in general, with cultural mores, with how things are done, how things, you know, and she probably watched and learned from a lot, you know, of him and, and you know, different people around him, the circles that they were in. Yes. And by by the mid-1930s, she had starred in Zuzu, 1934, and Princess Tam Tam, 1935. Have you seen either of these films? Oh, yes. Gosh, yeah. And, and I post clips all the time. Yes. I've seen the, I've seen the amazing clips you've posted where she's dancing and I wish we could like, it's hard. This is a podcast. It's not visual, but like, can we just describe her dancing? It's very like, 
it's almost like her limbs are like pieces of cooked spaghetti. Like she's very fluid. It's very fluid and free and just kind of not, not a structured dance. And it's not, and that's where that whole, where she was playing in that whole Savage, the, you know, the, the savage kind of vibe a little bit, because at that time, I think people have a better idea of it now. I mean, people like Catherine Dunham will come along later having studied in Haiti and Jamaica and, and, and letting the world know that these moves don't just come from nowhere. It's not just some black person being a savage. These are, these moves are a part of our culture. This, you know, there's a reason we have this rhythm. There's a reason the drums match our rhythm and our, we're clapping our hands. That vibe comes from somewhere. There's a reason why we look one way dancing and someone else who's not of our culture looks another way dancing. I mean, she's, she's a star in these films. She's at this point now, a huge, huge star in France. And then at one point she tries to come back to America, right? Yeah, she gets some type of, you know, because because of the success of Princess Tam Tam and Juju, some of these f- films that, by the way, of course, not shown in the South quite often, quite often during that time, Southern movie theaters will refuse to, sh- to show films with Black, star- Black people in them, especially if they were anything other than a maid. I mean, just the absurdity, I can't even like go into it. But they refused to show these things. And also, um, once she came back, she, the reason she came back because she got some big offer, I think. It was like turned to four. Yeah, it was, it was Zigfield. She got some big offer, but also some of the, uh, so, some of the offers in Europe were kind of waning too. And so she was kind of getting, a, she got a decent offer from Hollywood. She didn't have to play, you know, she said, okay, let me go and, and give this a shot. And, you know. Yes, the offer she got was a 1936 revival of Zigfield Follies on Broadway. But it was not Foley's. But it was not. It was not commercially successful. Time magazine. Someone just trying to revive on her past success and just trying to. Someone going exactly the opposite of what I described earlier. Whereas part of the reason for her big success was her authenticity. And so when people just try to copy that and package it and put it out, it doesn't have the same effect. But the reviews that she got were not positive in America. And I think, yes, Time Magazine in 1936, in reviewing her show, they called her a Negro wench, which is, imagine Time Yeah, I don't, I don't pay attention to review. Well, I shouldn't say I don't pay attention. I do. A better way to say it is, is especially, you have to take a lot of those reviews with a grain of salt in the white publications in, in, in America, because they were just so openly, a lot of time they didn't even pay attention, not just to a big star like Josephine Baker, but to any, whether it's an opera singer or whatever. I mean, there is, there is one opera star, I'll never forget. Well, this is earlier than Josephine Baker, but they said that, oh, she, her, her features are Negro, but, uh, pleasing to look at. I mean, they would just say things that they had nothing to do with anything. Just <laughs> and open so, racism. Open racism that had nothing. So they weren't truly reviewing her performance. All they could see is black. And, and to put a value on what Time Magazine thought above what, say, the Chicago Defender or what the New, New York Amsterdam News thought is just not, I think, something that we, going forward in American schools or whatever. I mean, I know people don't want to, the people are, are uh, trying to block um, critical race theory, which they'll never, they've already failed with that. And so it has to be incorporated into regular um, American history and look at other sources beyond the New York Times, beyond Time Magazine, because just because they said it doesn't mean that that's what the people thought. That's what it, what, what you know, that was not the, the be all end all. They already didn't like her. Do you, I mean, you're probably going to bring up Walter Winchell soon enough. I mean, so. Oh, talk to us about Walter Winchell. 
Well, that was more in the fifties. There's this famous incident where is he? He was a big uh, gossip columnist, whatever. And he wrote he. Um, there's the Stork Club. It was called, and the Stork Club didn't allow black people in one of those things. And she, she uh, tried to go to have dinner uh, at the Stork Club with some white friends of hers, or whatever. And they turned her away because she's black. Huge. They knew exactly who she was. This big star, or whatever. And relished in turning her away. But Walter Winchell was sitting in the restaurant at the time when it happened. And so she was like, this mother, are you kidding me? And so they had this big, you know, with Walter Winchell's, the head of hoppers, these, you know, these people who held the careers in their hands. So imagine if you're the rare, if, if you're the Josephine Baker, if you're the Eartha Kitt, and these people have any remote say, Dorothy Dandridge had to sue these darn tabloids in the 50s because they they made, they insinuated in one of their articles that she went off in the woods and had sex with some man. Imagine being a black legend, a black star at that time. And that's what you have to deal with. So a lot of those reviews to me, we don't have a true picture. Oh, of course. Um, of what actually of, of a balanced, um, a fair assessment of what the performance was actually like. There could be some performer that they might be like, oh, well, she's a little older now. Maybe her dance style. She's not dancing like she looks different. She may not, you know, it could have been any of that. But so many of these reviews were tainted. So we lost out in that way. Yes. So she returns back to France over America, which I do not blame her at all. In 1937, she marries the French industrialist Jean Lyon. Yeah, Lyon. It's it's spelled Lyon. And she becomes a French citizen. And World War II is coming upon us. So I'm just going to read very quickly kind of her involvement in World War II because I think it is very interesting. So September 1939, France declares war on Germany in response to the invasion of Poland. And Baker was recruited by the Deuxième Bureau, the French military intelligence agency, as an honorable correspondent. Baker worked with Jacques Apetit, the head of French counterintelligence in Paris. She socialized with the Germans at embassies, ministries, nightclubs, and charmed them while secretly gathering information. Her cafe society fame enabled her to rub shoulders with those in the know, from high-ranking Japanese officials to Italian and Vichy bureaucrats reporting to Abti what she heard. She attended parties and gathered information at the Italian embassy without raising suspicion. Now, this may be one of my favorite parts of the Josephine Baker story, because she is at this point, like an international spy working towards essentially, you know, the allied forces in World War II. This is amazing. Especially for that day, I mean, she's no longer considered a young woman. She's got, like, she's uh, in her late 30s, got to be early 40s by this time. So her career, her life is kind of changing over. Everyone, you know, it's a world war. And so no one knows there. Everything is up in the air. It's kind of like with COVID now and people, things change and people don't know what's going to happen in the world. So imagine you're, you know, it's, you're living in that time and the world is at war. And so no one knows their life is going to be. And so she did that. It is fascinating, but, and I know she talked about it a little bit, but I really wonder, I, I, she's one of those people I wish like she died, you know, what, 1975, she was only like 68, 69 when she died. I wish she had lived another 10 years or so or whatever, so she could still talk about what she really felt. Yes. Doing that stuff. The things that sound fascinating and amazing to us and even easy in some ways. It was like, oh, of course she was in these clubs. Yeah. Everyone can't get away. Everyone is just not her. Like I said, she just had the thing. She just the had thing. Yeah. She had that thing. So everyone could not get in there. And uh, there were other spies and other, you know, whatever. And of course, she was not suspected. I mean, a black American performer. They already think, you know, 
Black Americans, some of them maybe you're not so smart. And they also, even if you're not Black, entertainers were not very well thought of by a lot of people in society. It was not yes. always as respectful to be an actress or to be a, especially as a woman. So they weren't always, they're certainly not thinking you're going a spy and that you're going to blow up their spot. So yes, there's a book called Jazz Age Cleopatra that um, explains yeah. some, some more of her work. So she housed people who were eager to help Free, the free French effort led by Charles de Gaulle, who we, of course, know the airport in Paris is named after. But as you mentioned, as an, as an entertainer, she had an excuse for moving around Europe. She was visiting places like Portugal, South America, carrying information for transmission to England about airfields, harbors, German troop concentrations in the west of France. And this is interesting. It says notes were written in invisible ink on Baker's sheet music. So fascinating. Wow. That's, I mean, it is fascinating. And the fact that she was up to it and, and did all that, it's just, you know, and ima- and also it, those are things that we know. Imagine the things that we don't know that didn't, you know, you can you can get away with that kind of thing. That, I mean, nowadays, the way going through TSA and all that in the airport, now it'd be, it's a little harder to get through to get through airport but but it's it's the fact that she did the thing she was able you know whether she's transporting these things telling people things to remember and also just you know having a moment to yourself and also she has her family i mean her well i don't know if her mother was still alive then but she has her you know her other life too this is not something she's doing 24 7 so it's just um those are the type of things we can never know what they thought about that and what they you know what dangers she may have run into was she ever caught did someone actually know and maybe they just you know, they didn't, you know, tell on her in time or they suspected, but couldn't, you know, those are unknowable things that you can't go on about. But that's the type of thing I like to think about. <laughs> but she was she was awarded the Resistance Medal by the French Committee of National Liberation, which is a huge, huge, huge medal in in France. And I think to this day is really respected um, in France and internationally for all of her efforts during World War Two. So although she was based in France this whole time, Baker did support the civil rights movement during the 1950s. Um, She arrived to New York. She was refused. This is recorded reservations at 36 hotels because of racial discrimination. This is 1950s America. I'm sure every time she got back to America, she was like, this raggedy rundown country. I hate it here. She she was like, she said, I dine with kings and queens and I can't get a cup of coffee in a hotel in my own country. And isn't that just something? I mean, she was very upset about the treatment she uh, experienced in the United States. She also began traveling to the South, where if if she was getting it hard in New York, I'm sure in the South, it was a lot worse. She gave talks at uh, Fisk University, which is a historically Black college in Nashville, Tennessee. And then she refused to perform for segregated audiences in the U.S., which I think was Incredible. Um, she was offered $10,000 by a Miami club um, to perform. And she said no. And the club eventually met her demands and made it an integrated audience. Um, she insisted on this. Same thing with some Las Vegas shows. But then she started receiving threatening phone calls from people claiming to be the Ku Klux Klan. But she very publicly was like, I am not afraid of these people. I'm going to continue doing what I'm going to do. And I, I think that one of the things that seems really consistent about her is I think she had very high ethics and morals, right? She was very clear about who she was, what she would what she would accept and what she wouldn't accept. You know, she was when you say they were probably or the 
it was the clan they were so much more open about it then they would have buttons that literally said I, i'm a kkk member in good standing those buttons are now in like the museum of a uh, the black smithsonian as they call it in dc they had the paraphernalia so she i'm sure she was really getting calls from actual clan members they were a lot more open about it then about the, the th- i'm not so much about the threats but about being members of the clan so yeah that that kind of thing about not Lena Horne didn't perform. She also refused to perform in front of segregated troops during the war, uh, World War II. And Josephine, you know, when you were a bigger, big star like that, you could, you could get those demands. You could get that at some point. There were some things they couldn't do for you, you know. But there were, you know, you still had to go. So many of them walked through the kitchen of hotels instead of going through the front entrance. That that type of nonsense. <laughs> but I, but you know what? I think a lot of them would have taken the check or would have you know compromised their morals and ethics, which is why I'm saying she she held herself to like a very high standard. I think even today we know that a lot of musicians and artists. But that's not that's not bad. Yeah yeah yeah. They would have taken a, a check, and I don't think that's like below a standard because getting economic security is no joke. And so there was that is true. a lot of them would, yeah, they took that check. I mean, that King Cole took a check in Alabama around 55 and 56, and he was attacked on stage uh, by the White Citizens Council. The story about how she became friends with Grace Kelly, the actress Grace Kelly at the time, before she became Princess Grace, she went in 1951 to the Stork Club in Manhattan and she was refused entry Walter Winchell thing I told you. Yeah. Yes, Walter Winchell, that that jerk. But Grace Kelly, who was at the club, rushed over to Baker, took her by the arm, stormed out with her entire party and said, I will never return to the Stork Club again. And they became very close friends after that incident. You also told me we had a little pre-call before this that she and Grace Kelly remained friends. Grace Kelly obviously became a princess, but once towards the end of Josephine Baker's life, when she was dealing with bankruptcy and some financial hardships, Grace Kelly helped her, right? Yep. That's one of the first things I remember. In fact, as a teenager hearing about Grace Kelly is one of the things that stood out to me that she helped her. I don't know how much, and I, I don't re- recall the exact details, but I know that she, um, I don't know if she paid off something for her, but she kind of, and I think she may have possibly provided a place for her to stay because there was a time, you know, she lost her house. Wow. Her famous um, home. So there was a, you know, Grace Kelly did did come through towards the end of her life with that, like in the early early seventies, I think maybe late sixties. But yeah, that I mean, I mean, which which was you know nice of her. I mean, what a, a tough spot to to be in. That's the, I mean that that's I mean that's of course many years later after these you know from the fifties. That's like this is twenty thirty years later when her career kind of you know things go out of style. Like her type of music and dance and performance was not the hot thing anymore. And so you couldn't have the same demands. You you didn't have the same, weren't making the same money. And if you didn't save your money, you didn't, you know, manage it as well. Then, you know, and if you have 12 kids. Yeah. Yes. We haven't even gotten to the kids. We haven't gotten to the kids, but you know, the end, she worked with the NAACP. They had Josephine Baker day in 1950. No, Sunday, 20th, May, 1951 was declared Josephine Baker Day. She also spoke at the March on Washington at the side of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, one of the few women to speak during that day, by the way, not not very long. There's a great picture of her with Lena Horne um, uh, during that day. But there were a few women that were supposed to speak that day who did not. But she was she was definitely um, definitely there in her uniform, by the way. She was in that French resistance, the the French um the uniform with all her medals that she got for during the um, resistance. So, Nichelle, you already alluded to it, all of her children. So, 
At one point, Baker begins to adopt children, forming a family, which she often referred to as the Rainbow Tribe. Rainbow tribe. Yeah. <laughs> and she wanted to prove that children of different ethnicities and religions could still be brothers. So she has this incredible chateau, right? Like this huge, huge place in France, right? Yeah. And I can't even believe I'm forgetting the name of it. It's a, oh, it's Chateau de Milan. De Milan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's, it's huge. I mean, it's like the it's biggest a museum now, I think. I would love to go to that, that museum, but she starts adopting these children. I would love to hear anything you've come across in your research about all of these children she adopted, where they were from, how this all happened. I think she adopted how many in total? 12, 11? Between 10 and 12. I forget the exact number, but I know that there was, um, there was a Japanese child. There was a, like a Norwegian child, French child, you know, kids from every ethnicity. It was a black child. Yeah. She um, converts to Catholicism towards the end of her life. She loses her chateau due to these kind of unpaid debts. Uh, Princess Grace offers her this apartment near Monaco, but she comes back on stage and she performs. What do you know what her last performance was? I thought she was in France, wasn't she? Because she was doing the interviews. Those, and there's years. video of her, like yes. there's video of her, like the night before she died, like giving interviews. Yes. So she she performs in Paris. You're absolutely right. Celebrating 50 years in this business. And Princess Grace helps to finance it again with her her husband, the prince. And Jackie Onassis also helps to finance this. And apparently it was such an in-demand show that chairs had to be added to accommodate all of these spectators. And the opening night audience included Sophia Loren, Mick Jagger, Shirley Basie, Diana Ross, Liza Minnelli. And I, I think when you think about the end of her life, it's sort of sad in a way, but this is a very powerful way to go out doing what she loved as an entertainer on stage, still with so much like cultural relevance. Like at that point, Mick Jagger is like, the hottest rock star. Oh, superstar. Diana Ross is a superstar who wanted to play her around that time. So of oh, course she was going to be there. She, you know, she took many pictures because she, she remembers she played Billie Holiday and she really wanted to play uh, Josephine, Josephine Baker, Baker as well. But it was, that was kind of a triumph. I mean, she was making comeback performances, but to even have that interest, there's a lot of performers that can come back at that stage and they're not going to have Mick Jagger and Princess Grace and Sophia Loren still in, in the audience. And, and so that, you know, there was still an, an interest. There was still a fascination with her and certainly a respect um, for her um, in France. That's why I figured, I, I remember, I'm like, I'm pretty sure she was in France because she could only pull off that type of comeback there where the respect and that interest is there. America never had the same interest and respect as much as we love her. I mean, France just had that, you know. But four days after that performance, she was found lying peacefully in her bed but she was surrounded by all of these newspapers with glowing reviews of the performance, which I think is a beautiful thing. But she was in a coma. She had cerebral hemorrhage. She was taken to the hospital. She died. As you mentioned, she was only 68. Um, she received a Catholic funeral. There were 20,000 people that came to her funeral. And she was the only American-born woman to receive full French military honors at her funeral. And there was a huge procession. And her passing was no small thing. It was something that was internationally recognized. 
Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, and like you said, internationally re- recognized, of course, but to be buried with the honors um, that she had um, from her adopted country, um, France. So in May 2021, an online petition was set up by writer Laurent Kupferman asking that Josephine Baker be honored by being reburied at the Pantheon in Paris or being granted Pantheon honors, which would make her only the sixth woman at the mausoleum alongside okay, all these other people. In August 2021, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, announced that Baker's remains would be reburied at the Pantheon in November 2021, following the petition and continued requests from Baker's family since 2013. Her son, Claude Bouillon Baker, however, told AFP that her body would remain in Monica. Blah, 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 blah. The ceremony took place November 30th, 2021, and Baker thus became the first Black woman to be honored in the secular temple to the great men of the French Republic. Wow. Yeah, yeah, there was, I didn't post a lot of it on um, Vintage Black Glamour because a lot of the news was in French and I didn't have, I'm like, I'm working on my next book, the last Vintage Black Glamour book, as I call it, which is due like <laughs> by the end of this week, it'll be out Christmas 2022. And so I've just been like so knee deep in it that I just could not, take the time to give it justice on social media because I've got to, you know, social media, I'm, I'm a lot slower on that now because I'm really trying to put more things in my books and also my shows for posterity instead of, it's more, it's more long lasting. But it's to have that type of, like you said, bury with military honors when she first died in 1975. And then to have this honor now at the Pantheon, the only woman, the only black woman, whatever it was. I mean, it just speaks to the the rare, the, the gem that, that, that she was and how special she was on stage and off and beyond sexy, beyond the savage, but you know, the spy, she, you know, the performer, the, the humanity that she afforded everyone. And when it was not popular with to, to, any race, whatever your sexuality, she was one of those people that didn't care. There is, you know, so it was, it, it, it made an example of, of that, it, you know, it was kind of a role model for, I think, other people, for performers who came along after her. She really set the standard uh, for that. So, yes, she's just, just an absolutely incredible person. What do you think Josephine Baker would be doing if she were around today in 2022? I don't know. And I always, when people, I get asked that question all the time with people, whether it's Josephine Baker or Martin Luther King or anyone who was, you know, who who died 50 years ago, whatever. We can't know because people evolve and change over time. I'm a different person than I was 30 years ago. And I'm, 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 well, I don't care about my, I I tell my age all the time because people are so ageist and ridiculous. I'm 52. So 30 years ago, I'm 22 completely different person. I'm like, I, would, I, I wouldn't even recognize myself right now. And so I can't imagine, she died at 68. Now, granted, by the time you get to that age, you're kind of pretty set in who you are. I don't know that 68-year-old Josephine will be different than a 98-year-old Josephine. Dr. King was 39 when he died. So, I mean, who knows what he would, you can never know what he would have done. And with someone who was also, just because she was at a certain age, she was one of those people in my mind who was always willing to learn something new and be interested. I mean, look at things now with um, 
our LGBT friends who were using different pronouns, the thing, uh, the phenomenon with pronouns with they, them, and all. I think she would be like, instead of scoffing at it, I think she would be interested. Like, oh, wow, this is, I think she would be one of those people that would just, she's always going to learn. She's always going to be new. She's always going to be evolving. So I think that's how, I guess, when when you say what she, what she be doing, I think that's what she would be doing. I would hope that someone of her stature, like you said, she was working at that comeback because I think, yes, as a performer, you always have a love for the stage and you want to perform, but I would, I would have preferred her to have a retirement like Tina Turner, who is relaxing now <laughs> in, in Switzerland, comfortably living her best life. The younger husband. Wish, <laughs> yes. With her husband, comfortable, peaceful, doing her thing. I would hope for someone like Josephine Baker to be living like that, but also she, because she has a different personality, a different vibe, she would be speaking out for different rights. She would probably give a, a statement on this, whatever I support this or I don't support that, or this is crazy. I think, you know, she would have had some things to say about 2016. <laughs> so, I mean. <laughs> oh gosh, I, I, I would love to see her go in on Trump. I would like to see her comfortable and protected somewhere, wherever she would choose to be. But also I think that she would be speaking out because she would recognize some things. Think about it. I mean, she saw Hitler and these people. So she, a lot of those people that saw that with their own eyes, they could recognize some of these things like, hey, this looks familiar. And I think she would give a, a warning. She did it in the in the more dangerous times, if you'd say. You know, she was a spy. She did all that. She was she put she stuck her neck out when it was a lot more dangerous. Where she could all she could turn up missing and and never heard from again. Right. <laughs> you know. So she. I mean, who know? I think she would have. You know, that's what I assume. She probably would have been somewhere. That that's what I think. She probably would have been doing something like that. We can never know, but that is what I think is possible. Yes. And you bring up such a good point about her speaking out and, and risking her life being a spy. I mean, we give credit to people like AOC and not to take anything away from AOC for like tweeting something about leadership, like, oh, she's so brave. But when you think about the way Josephine Baker really put her life on the line for what she believed in, it's it's incredible. Any lessons that you think we can take from Josephine Baker's life or any way that Josephine Baker's story has inspired you in your life? Well, I think of Josephine Baker like I, I do a lot of the people in my um, in my work, um, artists first. I'm really interested in creatives and, and especially creatives throughout history. So as an artist, I, I look at someone like a Josephine Baker as someone who was just interested and curious and um, about all kinds of things and all kinds of people. And so kind of like take her stance of kind of listen first, check it out, try something. Don't be afraid of looking silly. That's the type of lesson that I take from someone like her, who I would say still is kind of a lot braver than someone like me. I was born towards the end of her life. You know, I was a child. I was five years old in 1975. So and she still had way more bravery from what I know about her than I would ever have compared to what she came into. Like we discussed St. Louis and and how she came through New York and eventually Europe. You know, I've had a pretty comfortable life compared to that, you know, because it's because of the Josephine Bakers who lived and did that, that you and I have this comfortable life. We can sit on this Zoom, you know, we can be relatively safe, you know, and, and we can choose to write books or do podcasts or do whatever we're going to do. We have a freedom that was just unheard of, you know, um, in, in those days. And people like her as artists, as creatives kind of fall for that, right? But also in the sense of, like I said, just the freedom of just trying something new. One thing I like about 
Earth of Earth a Kid and, and Josephine Baker, that, you know, like that freedom, not like, okay, this is the box I'm going to be in. This is what I'm supposed to do. As a Black woman, I'm supposed to do this. As an American, I'm supposed to do that. I just like people who decide that they are interested in something and they press on to it. And also even more props to people who see a wrong and speak out about it. I mean, Earth the Kid with you know, Lady Bird Johnson in the 60s and, and that White House, you know, nonsense with Vietnam. You know, so the bravery, the the balls, if you will. I mean, it's like everyone doesn't, people aren't brave like that now. So it's like, you know, and, and especially as an artist, you know, you're trying to, whether you're trying to get a check or you're trying to get in certain rooms and meet people and know people. I just take inspiration from people like that, even though I have more of a, a solo life as a writer. But I mean, I'm starting to work with other people now producing. But again, people like that, the, the barriers that they broke for us, it can't be understated. It can't be. And I mean, Black History Month, I think, is a time to reflect on all of it. But it's something I reflect on, honestly, like daily. I think about it daily. Black history is American history. And as I always like to say with Vintage Black Glamour, it's Black History Month every day on there. If, if people it would incorporate Black history with American history throughout the year, with world history, like in March is women's history, right? If we just incorporate history, I think that would make such a big difference in how people perceive things. We we now all due respect to Black History Month because it started out as Black History Week. It's not just something that was a marketing scheme or it's not like Mother's Day that just came out because someone wanted to sell cards, you know. <laughs> I think it was Cardi G. Woodson, if I'm not mistaken, but it was Negro History Week started out because our history was not being taught even to Black kids in Black schools. And so a lot of these scholars took it upon themselves to, to bring this information out, to kind of help teachers with the curriculum and teach the history so it was not forgotten. It's important to have respect for Black History Month and where it comes from. Some people, I think, kind of like to dismiss it and kind of like, oh, Black, why do we only get 28 days? No, it's, it, that's not, it started out as a week. It wasn't even, we did, be glad we have a whole month now. And Black people started it, we started it. So it's, you know, understand the history of, of, why we even have it in the first place. Yes. So well said. You are always such a pleasure to speak to a wealth of, of knowledge and information. If you guys don't have Nichelle's books, please, please buy them. And if you do have it, I think it's good to buy another one as like a gift for people. Everyone would love a vintage Black Glamour coffee table book. It's a great conversation starter. It started many conversations here in our home. Follow the Instagram account. And I know you've got a lot of exciting stuff. I don't want to like let any of your news slip, but TV, podcasts, things are coming. So we're definitely going to stay tuned. Yeah. Thank you, Brooke. A lot of it is, is, is in the development now, but I'm fortunate to be working with producers on developing a docu-series version, uh, show based on my uh, books, on all of my books, so kind of kind of drawing from um, information from all of those to kind of, you know, make it interesting and relevant for, for audiences. And also I'm developing my own a podcast. Like I told, I think I told you that before, but now I'm actually doing it. Yes. No. <laughs> because the podcast, as you know, it's a lot. And it's a it's lot of nothing. work. I, I need to finish this book first. I'm finishing the last Vintage Black Glamour book. It's called Vintage Black Glamour Encore. So it'll be the third and last book. Not because I, I it's the last book because I want to do other things is, um, outside of it. That's all. Yeah. And I'm writing TV and I'm writing TV stuff. So yeah, yeah. Amazing. Well, the Naked Beauty audience is here to support you in everything. And it's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you, Brooke. 
So that's it. That is the fabulous life of Josephine Baker. And we condensed all of that into a one hour discussion. There is so much more here. You could imagine there could be like a 12 part series and there could be an entire podcast dedicated to Josephine Baker in each chapter of her life. I have several books on her, photo books, biographies. Every single time I read about her or learn new things about her, I am just so impressed and fascinated. And I do hope that there is more content that comes to the screen about her life. I feel like Ryan Murphy could do a great job on like a little series about her life. There's just a lot there. I find her to be so inspiring. And I think just what Nichelle said at the end about being brave and having courage and putting your light out into the world, that is what inspires me most about Josephine Baker. So I hope you guys enjoyed it and feel inspired after hearing about her life. All right, I will be back next week with a new episode, a little skincare focused discussion with someone who I have a lot in common with because she works at the intersection of beauty and tech. So until then, stay well, stay hydrated, stay moisturized, and I'll talk with you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.